Thank you to Lori and Barb for that. My name is Johnny. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and, and right before the first service, my wife texted me that we had a bat in our house. Um, and then uh, last week, all four of my kids had the flu. Um, and it's daylight savings time. So we're going to pray, guys. We're going to pray. Uh, we're going to start with prayer because we need it today. So uh, pray with me. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together today for the season of Lent, God, um, a time to reflect. God, I, I pray for each and every one of us here as we come in, God, bearing um, burdens. Some of us are feeling grief. Some of us are feeling overwhelmed, stress. God, we also bear in us the good things of our lives and the fact that spring is coming, God. We, we come with all of this in hand. And we come also aware, God, of, of the violence in the world and the violence that has broken out in our own community this week. And we, we give all of it to you, God, because we don't know how to hold it ourselves. And so this morning I pray that this time together would be marked by your love, by your peace, God, that the words that are said and the words that are heard would be honoring to you and that you would be make your presence known to us today. We love you, God. We are so grateful that you love and care for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, I admitted to the first service, uh, I was not here during Advent at all when you all experimented with this craziness, Okay. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're usually normal, okay, uh, with, you know, people on the stage like you think, you know, it should be. Uh, so this is my first time being here and talking in the round, and I found myself very nervous all week thinking about it, nervous this morning. My palms were sweating. I didn't know what to do. And I realized that part of that nervousness is because I like things to be done in a particular way kind of a way, what you might call the right way, okay? Um, I like things to be done in a particular way, and I have a particular way. And I know I seem easygoing, I seem pretty chill, but deep down, I think, no, I'm not at all. And uh, this really became clear to me when I got married, and my wife had a discussion about how silverware needs to be put in the drawer. Like, normal people like my wife are like, yeah, you sort them out into the little slots. And I say, it's not good enough. They must be stacked neatly in the slots, okay? You got mismatching pieces, they got to get out of there, right? Because you can't have that. They have to be neatly in the slots. And I realized I have these little particularities. I like my shirts folded a certain kind of a way. I like the dishwasher loaded a certain kind of a way. And I realized I like to do things, you know, like I said, the right way. And, and this bleeds over as well into like home projects, things that I do in my house, whether that's building something or, or planting a garden or painting is the biggest one of all. Every time I get out a paintbrush uh, and a paint can, my kids ask me if they can paint with me. And every time, I act like I don't hear them and close the door, okay? Um, because God love them, they, they cannot paint with me. No, it's not acceptable because it's a mess, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a right way to paint. Uh, and I think back to my own dad, and uh, I think he always had me helping him with all these tasks, these tasks that I kind of do by myself a lot of the times. He always had me helping him, and I think it's because he uh, also realized that I do it the right way. I think that's what it was. Uh, so this morning we have come to the season of Lent, 
Uh, and every year uh, I come to the season of Lent and I'm struck anew that we build into our calendar and our rhythm of life together a season where we actually sit down and say, I don't do things the right way where we actually sit down and reflect on the ways that we fall short, on the ways that our way and, and our choices will always be a, not quite enough to get us where we need to go. And, I, and I'm struck by that because I don't often like thinking about the fact that my ways are not the right way. Uh, I don't like thinking that maybe uh, the way that I do things might come up short. And so the season of Lent is a time to reorient our hearts and reorient our minds around the fact that we do not have it all together, that we in and of ourselves cannot get this thing right. It's a reorientation of our minds and our hearts. And this morning in our passage out of uh, Luke 22, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples that or reorients their hearts and their minds as well. Because like us, the disciples thought they knew the right way to get ahead. They knew the right things to do, that they had the right pathway to get where they wanted to go. And so his disciples are sitting there having this conversation, and Jesus breaks in. So we're going to read it, we'll get a little background on it, and then we're going to talk about uh, this passage today. So this is out of Luke chapter 24, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 24. And this is the Last Supper, although, as I said in the first service, uh, that only Jesus knew that it was the last, Jesus and Judas, I suppose, knew that it was the Last Supper. To everybody else, it's just supper, okay? So this is where we find them. They're sitting down having the Last Supper. A dispute also rose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred it one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And now Jesus changes conversation seemingly uh, and starts talking specifically now to just one of the disciples who we call Simon, but we know as Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Peter replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So to set the stage a little bit uh, for what we just read, like I said, we're at the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples, and what happened just before this conversation is that Jesus has broken the bread, and he's shared the cup with his disciples, what, how we remember communion and the Lord's table. They've just gone through that whole thing. And then Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, one of you tonight is going to betray me. Someone that I'm at this table with right now is going to betray me. 
And at least 11 of the disciples are very shocked by this news. They're thinking to themselves, somebody's going to betray you at this table? How is that going to happen? And immediately, the conversation in the, in the book of Luke turns to who will be the greatest among them. And if you think about it, it makes a little bit of sense, right? Because Jesus has just told them, there is a worst among you. One of you is the worst disciple, right? Like, if you betray Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas, that's just the label, worst disciple. And so Jesus has said to them, one of you is going to betray me. They immediately all go into shock and then think, well, it's not me, so maybe I'm the greatest. And they start this conversation about who is the greatest disciple. And you can imagine that they're thinking about this in terms of who is the most faithful disciple? Who has done the most for Jesus? Who has followed the right way? Who has pursued the right path? Who has got it all together? Because that's the person we know that Jesus is going to choose to have power and authority. And Jesus sees them having this conversation and he breaks in with what would have been a very uncomfortable comparison. Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles lord power over each other, but it's not to be that way for you. Now, we hear that and we think, okay, sure, kings use power. But for the disciples, when Jesus uses the language of Gentiles, they are immediately thinking of someone who is unclean, someone who is godless, someone who is like not part of their circle or their community, somebody bad, somebody other, somebody on the outside. And Jesus says, it's not just the Gentiles, it's the kings of the, the worst bad people, right? That's who you're acting like when you focus on power and control in this kind of a way. When you start thinking in terms of, I am the most right or I am the most faithful, and so I get to be next to Jesus. Jesus says to them, this is not how to think about power and authority. Instead, the way that we're called to think about power and authority in the kingdom of God is he who serves or she who serves is powerful. That's what it looks like to have power in the kingdom of God. And so some theologians call this dynamic power over versus power under. I think you can see why. You're all very smart people, okay? And power over is the way that the world works. This is the way the disciples were comfortable with. This is the way that we are comfortable with. This is the way countries and organizations and companies run. You have somebody at the top. They have the most power, and they are pushing that power down on the people below them. I worked in middle management in college at UPS, and what you find out is that you just get squished constantly. In the, you're just in the middle, and the people at the bottom hate the people at the top, and the people at the top are pushing down, and you just get squished. And that's a power over relationship and dynamic. Jesus says instead that to have power is to come up underneath the system, to support others, to serve others, and that's where true power and authority comes from. That's hard. That's really hard to figure out. So my, my ministry now, my title is the pastor of virtual ministries, and what I am doing right now is building an online community for folks who know that they love Jesus and they want to follow Jesus, but they're not so sure that the church is the place where they can do that anymore. And that's kind of weird, right? Like, I'm a pastor, so obviously I have some affection for the church. I wouldn't be very good at this job if I didn't. Uh, and you all are here in church, so at least you have some sort of, like, relationship to the church. And it's weird to think that there are people who want to follow Jesus, but who church has actually become a barrier for them to do that. Those are the people that are kind of gathering online in this community. And the stories that I hear over and over and over again are that people have been hurt in churches that have adopted a power over 
mentality where the person at the top or the, the structure or the system becomes the preeminent kind of authority. And the people underneath become uh, tools of that authority, right? Or they're just kind of under that authority and, and they're being pressed down upon and their concerns maybe aren't being heard. And these situations can turn abusive sometimes physically or emotionally or spiritually because you have people who are disconnected from the authority because it's no longer about service and coming under, it's about pressing down. And people are finding themselves being hurt in church. Hurt, traumatic hurt that people are experiencing when their pastors won't have a conversation with them or they get called out from the platform and are called wolves in sheep's clothing for trying to have a conversation with a pastor. It's really, it's shocking kind of stories that you hear. And the whole thing comes back to this idea of how do we wield power in the kingdom of God? What does it look like to be the people of God gathered together and to serve and love one another? Or is it supposed to look like the CEO model that we look out into the world and see everywhere that we look around? What Jesus, I think, seems to tell his disciples is that no matter what fruit grows from the tree of power over authority, the, the authority of the kings of the Gentiles is, Jesus says it, no matter what grows from that, it's not going to be kingdom of God fruit. It's not going to be the fruit of the kingdom. It's going to be rotten in some way. It's not going to yield the results that people want it to yield. And as I think about that, I, I realize that I hate it. I hate that. Maybe it's because I want to be a CEO one day and boss people around. I don't know. Uh, but I hate it because it doesn't seem right. Because everything I've ever learned says that if somebody has the authority and the power, they can do something good with it, right? And if we could just get the right people into the right places. If we could just elevate the moral enough people or the righteous enough people or the faithful enough people, right, that, that the, these people could then sit in those places and they could get good fruit. I, t I say to Suzanne constantly, you need to pick up the iron hammer with the velvet glove, Suzanne. And she won't do it. She won't do it, guys. I beg her she won't do it. Because she knows, right, that this type of power and authority is not going to yield what we're going for here at this church. It's not going to yield the type of growth and the type of fruit that we are trying to pursue. But I hate that because everything that I've ever learned about how the world works says that it should work. That, that if the right person had the authority, things would be fine. And I think there's actually somebody in this story who is like me and wants, uh, wants the power of the kingdom of the world to be able to be wielded well. I think there's somebody in this story who thinks that he could do it. He could be the guy. At least I don't think I'm the guy, Suzanne. I think you're the guy, woman, whatever. Uh, I think you're the person. I don't think I'm the person. Good Lord. But Peter, in this story is pretty sure he's the guy. Peter, he knows he's the guy. If you look at Peter's story through the Old Testament, he gets like a really wild story arc because you see Peter at his beginning and he's a fisherman and then he becomes a disciple and then pretty sure, uh, pretty soon, Peter becomes like this like really cocky know-it-all kind of a guy. Like he, he knows what's up. He, know, he gets it, right? That's how Peter thinks. And so Peter is the only disciple who tries to walk on the water, right? Because that's Peter. He's like, I can do it. If Jesus can do it, I can do it. No big deal. He's going to do that. He, he, know, he knows the right way. Peter is the guy who first 
says to Jesus, you are the Messiah. He gets it. He, he knows he gets it. He's like, this is good. I know it. Peter, actually, in a conversation with Jesus, Jesus has just talked about how he has to die and suffer on, on behalf of the world. And Peter says, not on my watch, you're not. not you're not going to die while I'm around, Jesus. That's what Peter says to Jesus. Jesus is like, i got to die. And Peter says, not today. And, and Jesus actually chastises him. He says, you can't talk like that. That's not how it works. And so we're now at this table, and you can imagine when this conversation breaks out, who's the best disciple? I think Peter's just like this, like, these dudes think they're the best disciple. Like, he can't believe it. He's like, this is, a, this is ridiculous. I'm obviously the best. He doesn't even enter the conversation because it's so obvious that he is the greatest disciple. And I think that's why Jesus, after this conversation about authority and the Gentiles and all of this kind of stuff, and why in the kingdom of God it's about service, that's why I think Jesus turns to Peter and says to Peter, basically, you're going to turn away from me. Peter's like, excuse me? Like, I'm the guy. And Jesus says, you're going to turn away from me, but I've prayed for you. And because I've prayed for you, you're going to be able to turn back, and you're going to be able to strengthen your brothers. So this is a, this is a mixed bag kind of a statement by Jesus, because on the one hand, you don't want to be Peter being told you're going to turn away from me, right? Because Peter knows he's right. Peter knows how to paint the room. He doesn't need help. Um, no, Peter knows that he's right. So to be told you're going to turn away from me is like shocking to him. And he says to Jesus, no, 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 no. I would go to prison for you. I would die for you, Jesus. There's no way that I would turn away from you. And Jesus says, you will, but it's okay. Because I've prayed for you and you'll turn back. So Jesus says, Peter says, no, I'll go to prison I'll die for you. And then that very, very night, Peter gets the opportunity to do those things. That very night, Jesus is arrested, and Peter is in a situation where people are asking him, do you know Jesus? And he keeps saying, no, I don't know that guy. Three times, he denies Jesus. Given the opportunity to do the thing he said he would do, go to prison and die, he denies Jesus three times. That's exactly what happens. But then, he realizes what he's done. And that's the turning point in Peter's life. You talk about the story arc where he's like the cocky know-it-all. This is the moment of humility. And then after this moment of humility, Peter goes on to be the cornerstone that the church is built upon, which is crazy to think about, that this guy who denied Jesus three times. And the whole thing is that he denies Jesus three times, and in that moment, he hits his knees, he's crying, and I think he finally, in that moment, understands Jesus. And he understands that it's not about his faithfulness. It's not about him being the best disciple. It's not about him knowing the right way or getting all the answers. In that moment, what Peter realizes is that all of his life and all of this ministry and all of his future is not dependent on him knowing the right way or being faithful enough. It's all reliant on the fidelity of God. There's a theologian named Justo Gonzalez, and I, I, he sums up this passage so beautifully. He says it like this, Peter trusts in his own strength and fidelity, claiming that he will never abandon Jesus. But in fact, Peter will come back and be able to strengthen his brothers because Jesus has prayed for him. As in the entire biblical narrative, what is certain and unmovable is not Peter's faithfulness, but the Lord's. 
Peter will be able to return and follow the Lord and strengthen the rest, not because he is faithful, but because the Lord who has interceded for him is faithful. Peter's not strong enough. None of the disciples are strong enough. That's why Jesus tells them to stop arguing about who's strongest. They're getting the whole conversation turned around and confused because it's Jesus who is faithful, not them who can earn something by being faithful to him. So I was thinking about how I need to let my kids help me paint. Um, And I was thinking about my dad, and he really did always include me in his projects. No matter what it was, if it was out in the yard, I was out in the yard, uh, if it was uh, building something, I was sanding a board, whatever it was, painting, I was in there. I was doing it with him. I feel like I was doing it starting at like seven, eight years old. He had me with him. And I think that had to drive him crazy, right? Like, because there's no way I did it right. Like, I joke that I did it right, but there's no way I did it right. Have you ever done a job with a kid? Come on, guys. I didn't do it right. And I got to thinking, if it's not about doing it right, it's not about the labor, because he probably had to redo the things for me. I realized he had me doing those things because spending time with me is what he wanted to do. He had me doing those things because he loved me, and us doing them together was the point. It wasn't about getting it all the way right. It wasn't about how much effort I could put into it or how, how much I could get done for him. What, what it was about was us being able to spend that time together and his love for me. So Lent is a time to reflect on how bad we are at painting. That's a rough metaphor, but I think it's true. We think, we're, we think we've got it. But when we stand back and look at it, we realize we don't, we don't got it. We can't do this by ourselves. And I think that for a long time, maybe I thought about Lent as a time where we had to feel bad that we were bad at painting. Like, I don't have it, I'm not good enough, and now I feel shame, now I feel bad, now I feel guilt, woe is me, I'm a worm, all this different kind of a stuff. But I think instead, realizing that we don't know the right way, that we can't do it the right way, that we are not going to be able to generate in ourselves enough to get it right, that is actually a freeing thing. Because it gives us a chance to stop and think, Jesus involves us in this process not because we have to get it right, but because he loves us. That we're called and given this responsibility and this task of being the people of God, not so that we'll get it perfect. Jesus knows we won't get it perfect. Not so that we'll do it the right way. Jesus knows we can't do it the right way. Not so that we will be the most faithful. Jesus says being the most faithful is actually just getting in the mess and serving people. That Lent is a time not to feel bad about those things, but instead to be filled with gratitude and awe at the overwhelming fidelity of God. When we can't bring enough, God always brings enough. My prayer for us as we go out is that we would admit 
to ourselves that we don't get it right. And not that that would drive us to feel bad about ourselves, to feel guilt and shame, nothing, nothing like that. But that it would drive us to this place where we, like Peter, realize even though we're never going to be enough, Jesus is faithful and more than enough for us. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you made a way for us to be with you. That even though we're very convinced of our own rightness, God, we know that we fall short. And God, you don't look at us in that position of falling short and sneer. You don't look at us in that position of falling short and shake your head and wonder how in the world you got stuck with people like us, God. That you look at us in that place of falling short and you come in and wrap us up in your mercy and your grace and your fidelity, God. That like Peter realizing he was none of the things that he said that he was, like the disciples realizing that having power and authority was really not the way of the kingdom of God, when we are in that place and on our knees, that that's where we experience more of your love and mercy and grace than anywhere else. Not shame, but freedom, God. Freedom because of your faithfulness to us. God, I pray that we would serve as you serve that we would realize that the table that we want to sit at is your table where the first are last and the last are first, God. Where power doesn't look like the CEO org chart, but power somehow looks like the messiness of service and love. God, be with us. Fill us up as we go out this week and live into this Lenten reality. We love you, God. And we are overwhelmed by your love for us. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.